Hi, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, we are live for End User Computing Podcast. Uh, this is episode number nine, uh, perhaps the fullest house that we have had yet. Um, I'm joined uh, by a number of co-hosts and guests on the show today. Um, we have a very full house, and uh, we're, we're going to be going through a number of background topics, uh, like the history and background of application, uh, session, desktop, virtualization as well as containers. So um, if you're tuned in on the, uh, the the crowd chat, please feel free to ask any questions as we go along. Um, we have a number of uh, very highly esteemed guests that will be happy to answer any questions that come up in the crowd chat. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do uh, a round of introductions. So we'll start with Andy Wood. <laughs> Good evening. Sorry, I accidentally uh, clicked on the um, radio commentary for Leicester v Newcastle there, which was complete accident. I do apologize for that. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, Andrew Wood uh, at Gilwood CS. Um, hoping to have a very interesting conversation and, and a lot of listening tonight. Uh, some excellent guest speakers on. Absolutely. Anton? Hey, guys. Good evening. My name is Anton from Belts, and that's also my Twitter handle. And he's recovering from a cold, so he might be a little bit... Uh, Yep. A little bit quiet on the show. Hey, Chris. Uh, Chris Rogers, CTP, independent Citrix consultant, uh, Citrix Jedi, as most would know me. And that's on Twitter, right? That that's is on Twitter. Twitter. All right. Kenji? I'm Kenji. I am the founder and CEO of TurboNet, which is a container platform for desktop apps, and probably better known uh, for Spoon, which is my previous product, which was one of the app virtualization products. I am uh, Turbo Kenji on Twitter. Very cool. And Kenji, you actually just finished recording uh, buddies of ours, um, Johnny right. and Andy's podcast. Yeah, from... Two events today, so it's uh, and that one was an early, uh, I think it was at five in the morning or something. My time. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Well, I know you didn't get your nap in between, but hopefully you're ready to do it all over again and do another podcast. This looks like an exciting crowd, so we'll be we'll be fine. All right, Kevin. Hey, Kevin Goodman from FS Logics. I am the CEO and co-founder, and uh, my Twitter handle is RTO Kevin. Very cool, Mike. Uh, Mike Nelson, uh, Nell Media on Twitter. All right, Roy. Uh, Rory Monahan. Uh, I actually currently work with Kenji at TurboNet, uh, at Rory Mon on Twitter. And you're an uh, AppV specialist for, for many years, MVP for AppV as well, right, Rory? Yeah, that's right. I started off doing like MSI packaging and AppV and <clears throat> advanced to the point that I was a, an MVP. I'm also a V-expert, uh, pretty active in the community, presented uh, a few sessions at Briform, E2EVC, a few different events. Um, I also collaborated on the application virtualization SmackDown white paper, right. um, which covers all the you know different advert technologies. And also, for those that felt teased by Andrew 
mentioning the Newcastle match. It's 1-0. I just checked the score. 1-0 for the last time. I am aware of the fact, but uh, I'll, keep, I'll keep people posted and up-to-date during the game. <laughs> and us Americans have no idea what you're talking about, so <laughs> we'll just continue in our obliviousness. Uh, Steve? Hey, Steve Greenberg here. Company's Thin Client Computing out of Scottsdale. I have a very difficult Twitter handle. It's at Steve Greenberg. And excited to be here with this group. What Rory didn't say is he has some incredible Bryforum content. And I don't know if it's public. Is it public yet? But your last one, Rory, was like 75 minutes of every AppVert technology <laughs> demoed, pre-recorded. So, like, if you just want to inundate wow. your brain with all the technology, look for that. Yeah, I think it is public. Uh, but being Irish, I've learned self-deprecation, so I can't watch it back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you it was good. Thanks, Tim. And Tim? Hi, it's Tim Mangan from Team Urgent Technologies, um, generally known as the, the godfather of AtV. So you can find me at Timothy Mangan on Twitter. Godfather. Yes, somebody commented on the announcement uh, uh, podcast link that I put out there that Godfather seemed a little bit morbid. But uh, <laughs> I know no, some. No, he'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and I'm one of your uh, co-hosts. This is Dane Young. You can find me on Twitter uh, at Young Tech. Um, so I know we have uh, lots of people on the call, and uh, we're probably going to start spinning right away with all the fun chats of uh, the history and evolution. Um, but really quickly, um, to start things off, I wanted to just cover uh, the announcement that is late-breaking, uh, just came out within the last couple hours. Um, Absence is being acquired by Landesk. Um, and so for those that aren't familiar, Landesk makes um, uh, configuration management uh, inventory type of software for distributed uh, PC and server-based environments. And they have um, entered into an agreement to acquire Absence. So whoever wants to start off with that, um, just interested on you know, your guys' thoughts on what this acquisition is going to mean for Absence in the industry. Hey, Dane, this is Kevin. I, uh, I can tell you back when I was at VMware, um, there were acquisition talks of VMware to acquire Landesk. Obviously, it didn't go through. This is right after they were spun off from Emerson, I think it was. But um, you know, most people think that they're this uh, old, stodgy company, but they had a gajillion loyal users that rebought their software right. year after year. This, to me, just on the outset of it, looks like a nice uh, synergistic um, uh, acquisition. But keep in mind, I haven't looked at any of the details. I only heard you and Steve tell me about it once we get on the air here. So um, that uh, really looks like it would um, uh, round out their portfolio, though. Mostly what I remember about Landesk was they were mostly still physical desktops and uh, looking for a way to break into you know, hosted desktops. So maybe this gives them an opportunity there to get there. It's a nice extension. It's a nice extension. It's, it'll be a useful extension to Landesk's portfolio. And also one of the, one of the things that AppSense could do is physical desktops as well. So maybe there's a good synergy between those product sets. AppSense often used in a virtual workspace environment, but 
the tools are equally viable in a standard desktop environment. So there's a good there's a good synergy there in that respect. Um, should be interesting. Yeah, I can jerk in here. So I have to, uh, as a disclaimer, so uh, Landesk is an OEM for the turbo engine. So Landesk Effort is, is the turbo engine. Uh, and it's actually made our lives, actually my first reaction was it makes our lives real simple. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work around um, uh, more Landesk uh, turbo integration this year. In fact, we're scheduled to speak at their uh, Interchange 2016 event uh, in Las Vegas. And I just realized it's just one less conference we have to go to. Uh, we were also doing. Yeah, we were actually. I was just talking to Simon Townsend about. Uh, you know, people have been trying to get uh, well with AppSense since it's so prevalent in, in the Citrus world. So, um, you know, from my perspective, it's. Uh, uh, I think I think it's going to be a, a nicer integration story. We've worked with Landesk for uh, just about a year year or two. Um, they moved over them their OEM agreement actually out of VMware um, um, to Turbo. Um, and I think you will see AppSense uh, on the desktop. Would be my my take on it. They do a lot with on the physical desktop. Hey, Kenzie, you're onto something. Awesome. If we could get all these companies to merge into one, we'd only have to travel once a year. I, well, it's funny. <laughs> exactly. I want. So actually, I would have to travel even less because in the very very early days when I started Zenicode, which was the very first product we did, uh, they had tried to acquire uh, acquire the company. Uh, Landis did. So uh, it could have been a, a zero travel trip for me, maybe. But um, right, right. I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not AppSense um, sort of consolidates their portfolio and just focuses on the single product rather than uh, as spread out as they've gotten. Yeah, that's, that's true. Actually, yeah, they, what they got desktop now, and I remember at, at one point they were um, <clears throat> branching out with the AppSense Strata apps that didn't really go anywhere. Um, it seemed like... Uh, they had a mobile piece as well, didn't they? That, um... Right, yeah. Yeah, but then the, their actual uh, core product is pretty solid. Like I was the first time I used it, I was surprised just how powerful it is. It's almost overwhelming the amount of things you can do with it. So I think it's going to be a really good fit for Landesk. Yeah, and then just to keep in mind, you know, Landesk had done a number of other acquisitions in uh, in mobile. They did Shavlik and for patch management, and I know they did a mobile uh, acquisition recently that they that they were talking about a lot at their last event. So. Um, so I think any of the intersecting pieces there, I expect those to be. Um, I, I would guess they'd be focusing on the on the core AppSense product. So do you guys think that we will get a Landesk environment manager or something, or would the product be the same? Any I, I, I would I would suspect, and this is just speculation at this point. Um, I would suspect this is more of a play for uh, the physical uh, desktop and laptop compute environment. Um, for Landes to expand their portfolio with what Absence offers around security, around um, personalization management, and being able to restore people's personalizations when devices get lost or stolen, um, and just you know from a partner perspective, I've I've been watching the shift from uh, Absence messaging over the last six months or so, um, moving from what used to be heavily virtualized environments, um, the Zen apps, the Zen desktops, the Horizon views of the world, to Almost recognizing that that market is becoming ever eroded um, with the number of different solutions available, and it's you know less than 10% of the overall desktop laptop compute market. So it kind of makes sense that they're um, going back to targeting physical endpoints and bringing the power of their their solutions to physical. And I think that's really where Landesk plays the most 
um, from it's a where great I point, Dane, because that's in essence a larger market, at least today. The other interesting twist is AppSense has a monitoring package called Insight, which didn't get much coverage because they were known for, you know, user environment management. But now, in the context of Landesk, that may have a whole new life, right? Something that monitors your your uh, Citrix or view environment. So it'd be interesting to see how it shakes out. One of the things you'll notice about Landesk with their acquisitions as well is they tend to sort of leave them alone, um, not try to do too much, change too much about them as well. And, you know, that's going to be the first concern for every AppSense customer out there. Oh, no, what's going to happen now? For all those satisfied customers out there, Landesk has a history of... of um, not trying to bring them into the fold and make cultural changes and stuff like that. So for a company as big as AppSense, which does, you know, it's not the size of a Citrix or VMware, but they do $100 million a year, um, that's going to be a good thing. I'm sure there'll be some redundancies, but for the product-wise, I think it'll be a good thing. I think core technology-wise, in terms of technical, um, it'll be very useful to keep it very steady. I think, I think as everyone has agreed... It's a solid. It, there's a solidity there, uh, stable. Lots of users using it. Mm. Um, that's been interesting. So, like the marketing, marketing sales teams have shifted around at AppSense a bit. So maybe, maybe this has been coming for a little while. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yes. From a customer point of view, if they know that it's going to be a steady ship, um, that'd be incredibly useful. And yes, for for any sort of vendor in in any in an end user compute space. There's been a resurgence in end devices being their own thing. If you can help recover them and set them and allow you to bring in your own devices into a particular environment, which in theory AppSense can, can help you do by saving settings and allowing you to recover settings and giving autonomy to the end person, um, that's going to be very useful and fit, fit well into the portfolio that's been brought into. i got to ask the group a question, though, with uh, Dell... Uh, and their acquisitions, um, their monopolizations. Well, it, with with hey, them, five minutes ago we were asking that there just be one company, and now when it happens, yeah, people complain. <laughs> You're never happy. My point is, I think they're doing it because they know the PC market is a dead end, and then HP just split into two companies so that they could saw off the section that sells uh, uh, physical desktops, and then IBM sold Lenovo years ago. I mean, are we really? Yeah, there's 70, 750 million Windows uh, uh, physical machines out there that are running Windows 7 alone, but are, are we really thinking that's a long-term market and a viable strategy if they're just going after physical? i got to figure that Landesk is using this as a way to get to the uh, cloud desktops. There's, I, I think there's still a physical device, um, but it's a fair point to say there's a, there's a big market for physical today, you got to keep your eye on that DAS application provision. Not I, I don't very much desktop per se, but application. And then there's still a requirement to keep settings consistent as those applications move around. That said, um, the way that Windows is managing the different device types, when we say PC, it's no longer a PC. Was it the device? Form factor is different with an operating right. system and application delivery mechanism that is consistent, <laughs> relatively consistent, almost consistent <laughs> uh, between, <laughs> between the different device types. But there's a dream, yeah, there's an aspiration for that to be the same across your devices. 
it's going to be fascinating to see how this pans out. But I got to tell you, I'm chomping at the bit to talk to our special guest today because we've got some incredible talent here. Um, so you want to so take without this? further yeah without further ado, let's uh, let's go ahead and dive into it. So that's I think that's about it for uh, the late breaking announcements. Um, so what I wanted to do with this podcast is kind of talk about um, you know we we have such depth in history here. Um, with the number of uh, guests and even the co-hosts on this podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know the history of application virtualization, session virtualization as we know it, published applications, etc., uh, even desktop virtualization, and and then on to containers. So, um, Tim, would it be okay if we start with you and you can kind of tell us about your your early history with uh, what we now know as AppV? Sure. Um, so uh, when we got started, you know, we were really a, a game streaming company originally. Uh, we weren't doing any virtualization at all. Um, and we moved into that space back in about 2001. Uh, we created uh, AppV. And, and the idea was simply to provide a mechanism to get the applications. At that point, I mean, number one priority was just get them distributed out. Um, we didn't have the kind of app distribution systems like uh, System Center um, back then that were really very good at all. So it was kind of a replacement for a way to get the apps out there. And along the way, uh, we felt that virtualizing them and getting them separated from each other made a whole lot of sense. And so um, those were the two primary premises that kind of got us going. Okay, and then when when was Soft Softricity actually founded, Tim? When did you guys get things started? Was it in the late '90s or? Um, well, we were software WoW in the late '90s, and uh, we sort of switched over in 2000 to Softricity to try to uh, commercialize and do the the, the SoftGrid platform. Gotcha. And then the the Microsoft acquisition was around what time period? Um, it was. Just about 10 years ago this month or next month, something like that. So uh, about 10 years ago. It was a little bit later because we were an early Softricity reseller, and we did um, at, at SoftGrid with uh, a number of customers before the Microsoft acquisition. Well, you're getting old, Steve, because yeah, it, it is just 10 years ago. <laughs> no, Dane was still in diapers. That's right. That's absolutely right. There's a reason why I'm going to keep my mouth shut when we're talking about the history of these things. Because I don't know shit. Just for our listeners, Dean's only spent, 12. Just because so you know. spent most of the history of it in diapers. Exactly. I'm like, wow, Windows 7, this is fascinating. <laughs> that was a DOS? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting dynamics is how um, life comes around in circles because Tim talked about two themes we hear today, that the original use case was delivering games, and the second was um, you know, moving, like to be able to stream it off the Internet and then moving into the enterprise. And we see that same dynamic with a number of other frameworks. And one that comes to mind is um, Spoon and Turbo that Kenji is the founder of and Rory works with now. Um, talk about those same things, and when you look at today's implementation of a kind of container-based delivery, it's got those same elements, but with you know some modern twists. So it's fun to see people sort of come up the same way, come to the same conclusions, and then solve the problem in different ways. 
Well, uh, so this this Kenji. Uh, so slight historical correction. So the other the other gaming origin one was Dinstall, uh, which came about sort of when I was uh, starting up uh, what would become Spoon. So uh, although although we had a uh, sort of similar type of problem, uh, except our our domain actually our first product, I, I call it our Series A, uh, was uh, uh, for deploying the .NET framework. Uh, so I was back in grad school, and uh, you know, one of the, this is sort of before .NET became a uh, kind of the standard way that, that Windows apps are being developed. Um, and we sort of saw that one of the one of the problems with, with .NET, you had this great uh, platform, uh, this great development platform, but it was very difficult to deploy the apps because you had you know you had to have the, the the right .NET framework, the right libraries, and so forth. Um, so we kind of came at it from uh, um, from the angle of distributing .NET based applications and merging those dependencies in. Um, and kind of along the same lines, though, as as what um, what I think uh, software wow was a little before my time, um, but uh, but I know certainly about Finstall. Uh, you know, is that we were both very interested in um, being able to do web based web based distribution, so distribution to heterogeneous, unmanaged um, endpoints, and that's kind of is in the DNA of both products um, when you see sort of user mode implementations and uh, and of course uh, streaming um, and and other things, but um, yeah, it's interesting how um, this and other, and other other products as well kind of you know they always start out from very specific kinds of um, um, you know very sharply defined distribution problems, um, and then they've all kind of moved towards first app virtualization, and I think and I view containers as sort of a as sort of a next evolution of app, of um, you know, of the app for technology stack. Absolutely, and yeah. it's interesting that if you look at the timeframes like the early um, thin stall is a self-executable that you start to run and it can kind of stream down the components. But Kenji, when you addressed a similar sort of challenge a few years later, you leveraged the web in more modern ways. So it's fun to see how that, both, you know. Both, both products started out initially. It was actually, the, the, the install exe thing was actually a paging based, you know, you basically put it on a file share and a page, uh, cloud paging, there you go. Uh, what we were saying, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, so and both actually the initial model for both of ours was the same. Uh, was the same idea. We 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 put a, a lot of sort of uh, effort into doing a really um, you know sort of uh, deep sort of machine learning oriented um, streaming engine when we when we realized that when we kind of got into doing um, enterprise applications, um, you know we were still in sort of more web oriented mode and, and maybe Tim can. Talk about, but I guess I'm assuming that when you know, Microsoft was doing software, they were immediately sort of being pushed more in the enterprise and sort of Microsoft managed um, direction. But we were very much in, in sort of web-oriented distribution mode, uh, and that really forced us to do um, a lot of things, not just with the streaming, but with um, you know CDN compatibility uh, and offload and, and high latency networks, uh, and that sort of that shaped a lot about what we did um, in terms of the streaming engine. Uh, as far as as far as uh, turbo goes and, and for those that aren't uh, familiar with the the company names and you know the genesis and where they've come to thinstall is now what we all know as thinapp uh, which is vmware property um, so just to keep all the the, the brands and everything straight um, steve if you could uh, and I apologize for putting you on the spot, but take us back in time to um, you know the early days of session virtualization and how that came about, um, at least as far back as you remember, right? Sure. Well, yeah, we're kind of talking about some different general approaches here. So there's kind of AppVert and AppV created that category. 
but also had the uh, idea of isolation of a system guard around processes and creating sets of processes and different versions of components, you know, registry, DLLs, files, etc. Um, the other sort of virtualization we're talking about is generally would be containers, and I'll talk about that in terms of session uh, virtualization. And mm -hmm. then, then we'll get into layering, which is kind of the newer wave. So container virtualization has been around a long time. Um, some would say longer than even hypervisor, but the idea is that the host OS, in this case talking about on the OS level, spawns guests that share essentially the kernel of the host. So it's a very efficient type of virtualization where hypervisor spins up a new instance of every OS, you know, it loads its own um, virtual emulated hardware, it loads its own OS, in the kind of container session virtualization world, the difference is you're leveraging the one host to spin off deltas, so to speak. And the, when we think of modern containers, it's a kind of a refinement of that in, um, in a unique way. When you think of Dockers, you tend to think of server-side applications. So that's uh, a set of components that have enough independence to have their own identity and their own managed code set, but to leverage a host OS. And a Spoon and Turbo, Kenji's thing, is yet another variation on that, which uh, it's kind of hard to explain. I'll let him do it. But it's a little subtlety where it's kind of like containers, but it can handle client-side applications. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, yeah. Kenji? I, I think, you know, one uh, one way to exp I explain it is, you know, if you're familiar with AppVert, AppVert sort of deals with the application. And I view containers as sort of if you took applications plus data and you deal with them in a, in a sort of unitary manner, uh, you get towards a, a pretty decent definition of, of what a typical container product looks like, whether it's Docker or whether it's Turbo or, or, um, or something else. But you do highlight something that I think is really interesting. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we and, I, as, and ThinApp and AppD as well, you know, come from a desktop app background. So we sort of, a, a lot of the... Um, Technology could have evolved around the needs of the desktop application. Uh, so now today, Turbo now supports um, supports server applications, but it was sort of a new thing for us. But one of the, um, uh, I think, a really interesting point that you highlight, and I think um, as people start to look at containers on the desktop, uh, they'll they'll discover this, uh, and we certainly have, have encountered this. Is that is that in the world of the of the desktop, what you don't isolate is as important or more important than what you do isolate. And one of the big pitfalls of containers on, in, in the desktop world is that, um, you know, it's, it's very often, you know, you want applications to talk to each other. You want, um, you know, data to move onto the, onto the, into the session or into the desktop, or you want, uh, you know, uh, networks or local pipes to be able to talk to each other. Because a, a lot of the modern application stack falls apart. Um, when, when you when you put things in, in too tight a bubble, and yet you want enough of a bubble uh, where you know you're you're still not um, uh, damaging the, the the host device, and you have a certain amount of security, and and you still have a portable application. So I think that's one of the most you actually hit on one of the most interesting challenges um, um, in regards to desktop versus server uh, containerization. Well, and I think you're hitting the core of it, Kenji, because when we look at the let's say the age of AppVert of containers and layering, it is all about 
where to set the isolation, where to set the bubble. That's the challenge, right? Is do yeah. I want the ease of running in user mode and I just layer something in versus um, like App V, which can run in kernel mode and truly isolate, but then you gain complexity. And um, I think that's an interesting focal point as we look at these different technologies to keep in mind how they isolate. Do they run in user, kernel? What processes can see each other? How is it delivered? Is there yep. even a client, right? Do you need yep. something installed locally? Actually, I, I don't think th those factors are, are important at all to that discussion, Steve. It has nothing to do with uh, kernel and, and user mode. It really has to do with how you're, um, where you're deciding to isolate and where you're not. You, know, you look at something like um, the, the newer apps that Microsoft have, all the AppX-based stuff, whether you want to call them you know, modern apps or universal apps or whatever. You know, those are running in a container that is quite isolated, and that's all being done in user mode. Yeah, the user, the universal kernel thing, I think, is more an issue of, uh, you know, you know, if you if you if you have control of the client, which Microsoft. That's what I'm getting at. It's whether or not it's managed, right? Is is I think well, the difference. I guess Microsoft is. I mean, I guess the big, the relatively recent news was that they're they're going to put the IP client into into the Windows base OS. So that kind of obviates a lot of that um, issue. Still an issue for legacy desktops. Um, I don't I don't think the uh, the app. I, I don't think even then it's sold as a, as a security isolate. You know, secure doing a doing a secure containerization even with a kernel driver is is pretty tough in Windows. So I uh, I doubt they'll really make um, that claim. I think it'll be I think it'll be a step up in security. But I think people will still need to go hypervisor for for uh, really sealing the security story. Yeah, well, Microsoft's doing some interesting stuff. If you've uh, looked at any of that um, in, the, in some of the futures on Windows 10, they've yeah. got this. Um, Isolated user mode thing that they're playing around with. I mean, it's still a long way off. The drawbridge, I think, or something like that. Yeah, the the, the idea is that um, the kernel itself can't be secure if you're if you're allowing third parties to add all these drivers in. And Microsoft's kind of recognizing that and saying, Hey, wait a minute, we need to take a step back. We need to provide a way to be able to completely secure off a user mode process so that other things, even kernel objects, can't see them. And from a securities perspective, it, it's probably the right idea for the future. It's really a question of um, how long will it really take them to pull all that stuff off. Well, it's they're going to take it in um, baby steps as well. So for 2016 server, if you want your filter driver to load, you have to have it signed by Microsoft. In the past, you used to be able to get it signed by VeriSign or anybody else. Just as long as that a digital signature on 2008, 2012, you can load that driver. It's going to have to have a Microsoft digital signature if it's part of the file system in uh, Server 2016. So they're, you know, they're recognizing they're not going to be able to get there immediately, but this is one of their intermediate steps. Yeah, just really quick. I know we uh, we had a late inter entering guest, and he's been on mute this whole time. So um, Claudio Rodriguez is now on the call. Hey, Claudio, are you there? Yeah, guys. How are you? Good. How are you? All good. Good. Did we get you out of bed, Claudio? What? <laughs> Did we get you out of bed? You sound yeah, I'm, not, I'm not in bed yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I know you recently did a, a podcast, uh, Claudio, with, uh, or I guess it's been a couple months, uh, uh, Brian and Gabe, when, when was that podcast you did with those guys? Yeah, it was a couple, 
like a couple months ago, I don't remember the date, but probably we are like in March. Uh, I would say probably January or December. Okay. I know. I know. On that podcast, you guys were uh, talking a lot about the the genesis of uh, application and, and desktop publishing, um, and I think you said you go back to the WinView days. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Back to the OS two days. OS two, and it, something was said on that podcast that I think there's only one other uh, pundit in the industry that goes back that far, and it would probably be Steve Greenberg. So, Steve, do you go back to OS two? No. Yeah, I, I definitely worked with WinView OS2 extensively, but so did Webster. Uh, Webster did as well. Okay. The, uh, the accidental Citrix admin. That's right. So Dan, I, I think that was before your parents were born. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so uh, I, I was an OS2 programmer, if that counts, and my book, I still have the dog-eared copy, was written by Ed Yakabuchi. Some of you may not know that, but he was an author, wrote the OS2 programming guide. Wow. Well, wasn't that basically the genesis of Citrix, that he had the idea for multi-user OS2 and IBM didn't want to do it? Uh, it's, I think you're exactly right, right? that's exactly what happened, Jeff. But we digress. Well, yeah, we do digress often. Um, so, so I know uh, one of the main differences, for those that aren't, aren't as familiar, uh, I would highly recommend going out and checking out, um, I don't remember who had said, oh, Rory had uh, co-authored some of the parts in the application virtualization Smackdown white paper. Um, really great white paper for those that aren't as familiar with these concepts. Um, you know, the differences between application virtualization uh, and application publishing and when to use different scenarios, and I think you know, a big part of it has to do with the execution environment. Um, where exactly do you want or need the applications to be executed, uh, either in a distributed fashion out at the edge or centralized inside of the data center? I think a lot of those concepts still hold true. Um, and as more and more customers are uh, trying to take a different security stance, um, we're, we're seeing a resurgence towards uh, moving the application execution environment into the data center. Not because it in and of itself is more secure, but because you have a lot more ability to control uh, the environments and, and the, uh, the surrounding uh, network security protocols um, in the data center versus out at the edge. Um, anyone want to go into a little bit of detail of how this has evolved over the last several years from executing on the edge versus executing into the data center? Uh, and I know this kind of bridges into the whole desktop virtualization genesis as well, so anyone want to take that one on? What have you guys seen out there? Sounds like you're suggesting this could be, wait for it, the year of VDI? No, no. <laughs> Someone had to say it. Heavens no. Um, I think that's why no one wants to touch it. <laughs> Haven't we had this conversation before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dane's handed over a fizzing grenade and goes, so who wants to pick that one up? And we're all just looking at the fizzing grenade. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Andy, you and I, you and I have talked, and I think we even had a chat on one of the first uh, episodes of the podcast around you know, the, the reasons why organizations started doing uh, session virtualization and, 
and publishing applications from the data center had a lot to do with the speeds and feeds and network connections of, of years gone past and that it, it became very difficult to push down large packages of heavy applications over very thin pipes. And I know that's that's been my background uh, as well, although uh, not nearly as extensive or um, or as many years as some of you. But you know, my my experience has been uh, from a uh, low bandwidth, um, difficult connection, dif difficulty difficultly connected environments, um, executing inside of the data center, and then just pushing a session makes a lot of sense in those cases. And, and I know, uh, Tim, you recently, or you just posted on the, uh, the tweet chat as well, uh, you did a, a very nice marketing um, overview video uh, over the holiday Don't that talks about marketing. Please. Oh, come on, it's marketing. <laughs> <laughs> if it's informational and educational, eh, never mind. I won't, I won't go there. <laughs> So, uh, so the video that you made uh, does a pretty good job of overviewing the different technologies as well um, and when uh, the different virtualization solutions would be appropriate. Um, so for anybody that hasn't seen that video, I'd highly recommend it. I so kind I was I was going to go I was going to answer your answer your question. The the fizzing uh, uh, the fizzing grenade. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm going to I'll put my helmet on that and sit in it. Um, when when sort of like the server-based computing came out and that application delivery piece came out, there were lots of people who wanted to deploy very large applications to many devices, and it it wasn't just about the application code; it was about the data as well, right? And quite often it was how do you distribute that data, and how, down down a pipe which you're also trying to deliver an application on it was it was incredibly slow in that sort of client-server world. Um, what seems to have changed around is that people want and understand better how to do that sort of offline, off, offline, mobile, moving about working and are able to distribute applications more rapidly and more quickly because the bandwidth connections between sites is larger. To some extent, I'd suggest the reason that it hasn't, it has rarely been, if ever, the year of VDI is because for some organizations, it does answer a specific question. For a number of organizations, it, it, it sometimes doesn't. And then it becomes, how do you deploy applications quickly and easily? Um, Advert sort of works. What I'm finding with the app layering piece is that it, it works across a broader range of, uh, of environments today, um, especially with some of the operating systems being able to support some of the functionality that the app layering offers, um, and app layering has some, some wider pieces. Yet still with that desktop as a service, that application as a service, you still need to buy into a service delivery from somewhere, and it's not just about the application. It's all well and good you having a service provider that delivers your app, but where's your data? Right. If, you if your application's being delivered by your desktop as a service provider and they're in site A, where's your data being held from? Because if in that's, that's in site B and the network connectivity between site B and site A is poor, the application experience is poor. If the application experience is poor, then users ain't going to use it. So, Andy, uh, let me jump in for a second because you transitioned into, we talked about three basic eras or technologies, AppVert, containers, and layering. And you can I, I do them all in one sentence? 
Yeah, but you hey. that uh, layering was more flexible. Is that what you were saying? I'd like to hear your. I, uh, this is one I, I, I in talking to in talking to customers. Um, I, I am finding that they find layering easier to get their heads around than the whole advert piece, which, while it got better over time, quite often required them to uh, send applications off to factories because they didn't have the skills in house. That all took time. You know, you would consider, in, in theory, that uh, people are sending out applications all the time. The factories would be able to do a quick turnaround because, hey, you only want the model that's black, yeah? But quite often, people are sending custom cars to these application factories and going, we want that. The whole process shudders to a halt for Advert, where you've got your own in-house application doing your own special thing that gives your organization that special piece of value over and above the competition. Yet with layering, you know how the application was installed. You can install it more quickly, more easily. You don't necessarily have to farm it out. Timelines get shorter. If timelines get shorter, if ease gets shorter, if you don't have to speak to a whole lot of people, you deliver quicker. So the whole time, the value of the project is reduced. Uh, cost, time, effort, all brilliant. With the layering piece is, yeah, is what I'm finding that well you that's never gone. necessarily got with the, with the virtualization piece. Although Tim's on the phone, so I've probably now regretted putting that helmet <laughs> on the grenade. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll, I'll let Tim report. <laughs> well, what I wonder is, is how well is this really going to hold up in, in the long run? I, I think the, the idea that it's simpler, um, you know, the king is dead. In Long live ways, the king. Yes. In many ways, it, it it will be simpler for certain things. But you know, when I look at uh, all of the apps that I see out in the enterprise, I mean, I kind of look at um, you know a map with a whole bunch of dots on it, and I think that um, you know AppVert has a set of apps that it's it's really good at, and some that it don't. And you can put a circle there, and I think uh, you can put layering, and different layering solutions would have different circles on there, and it'll be in slightly different places. Um, I think even the uh, you know the stuff that uh, Kevin's company is doing, you know, they'd have a circle on there. And there's a large number of apps that sort of sit in the Venn diagram intersection of all of those, but they all have apps that fall outside of their circle. And I think as you start to get more experience and start getting into more and more apps with more customers, um, we're going to find we have the same kind of problems. It's just lots of apps that have them. In the end. I don't know if the customers just don't end up needing, you know, two or oh my God, I hope not three of the solutions to be able to help handle their entire portfolio if they've got 500 or 1,000 applications. Right. Yeah, I actually I agree with Tim wholeheartedly on that. Um, just from my experience, I mean, there's a very high rate of application compatibility when using layering, but it's not going to get you all the way there. And then, in my own personal opinion, um, and maybe this is just from experience working for certain um, companies and in certain industries where they were uh, one particular large company I worked for uh, they had a mindset of not getting too attached to one vendor and they wanted their applications in a format uh, in a payload that could be deployed using any deployment tool and to provide them greater flexibility whereas I think with layering um, you know you're deploying it using a very specific set of tools, um, and while it is flexible, it's not entirely flexible. Depending on the product that you're using, you may have, um, say, a, one layer for an application for Windows 7 and a different 
layer that covers it for Windows 10 or 64-bit versus 32-bit and that sort of thing. Whereas with an AppVert product, AppV, then AppVert, TurboNet, um, you could just have like a single package and deploy that, and it's a very kind of dynamic delivery. It's just my yeah, opinion. I, I think you're onto something there, Rory, um, and I've run into that as well. Is like because of, because there's no isolation component with any of the layering technologies on the market. Um, if you decide to use a container or a layer, um, I won't use the word container because that uh, alludes to TurboNet. But if you decide to use a layer as your delivery mechanism, um, it, it's very much tied to that particular uh, operating system, bitness, etc. There's a lot of players out there, even Aptis is doing this to a degree, where, where they'll say, oh, if you create a layer on 2008 R2, it'll work across you know, Windows 7 as long as it's the same bitness. Um, frankly, I, I don't buy it yet. Um, yeah. not, not because I don't think they tested it. I do think they tested it. But there's a lot of really crappily written applications out there that um, you know, were either developed in-house or developed with uh, a, a heavy-handed uh, development team from, you know, any of the large uh, consulting firms out there, and I, I just don't, I don't buy it that that those applications can be um, made portable across different OSs uh, like they say they can. Well, do so, right. you know the technical term is uh, application? Uh, well, right. At the same time, at the same time, to be fair, what I'm reporting on is customers who have got applications that need to be virtualized. Or, or they'd like to be able to deliver more quickly. And for them, the layering technology works better. Now, that's not to say that they can do all of their applications or that it it will fundamentally deliver every single application that they give. They're just finding it easier because mm -hmm. a lot of their apps, to take on Dane's point, have been developed in-house and it was tricky to get them into that sort of AppVert world unless they understood AppVert very well, in which case it was easy for them. I, I do know organizations that have done AppVert 100%. They're small. Uh, the number is small. Not that those organizations are small, but the number is small. I just so the, think there's a wider there's a wider brief for layering. It is another tool. It is not the only tool. It's not a silver bullet. Uh, you must still pay your taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so there is a very important point here that I want to draw out: is that the 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 ease of use. So so the ease of use in terms of getting apps into the layering system is not uh, the fact that that is easier relative to app virtualization is not intrinsic to app virtualization in other words it's not an intrinsic technological limitation and this is something very important we <coughs> certainly <coughs> uh, a turbo and, and a, the same applies to app very much so and think it's all install i've always viewed the, the main issue as an industry in terms of, of doing app virtual containers was was the uh, the main barrier was the challenge of getting apps into the system. Once apps are in the system, it was, it's a great solution. And, Absolutely, and, and, yes. Like you, like you observed, it's very difficult to get things into the system. So, uh, but I want to point out that the the uh, what you've described is this this type of onboarding experience for the app, where you can simply go through a normal install and have that captured. Um, that's something that we've done in the Turbo Container interface, which is kind of where I think we've taken a step forward away from just the um, the app vert. Um, or the traditional way that people think about app vert. So it's certainly not an it's not an inherent technical um, limitation in in app vert. So I think that is important to keep in mind. Those are are product limitations and implementation ones, but not ones um, that are intrinsic to the technology. So I think that'll be one of the big transformative shifts, particularly in 2016. Um, and you mentioned customers. Is, is that is that uh, the transformative shift will be a the app vert products saying, look, 
Yes, all right. It was hard. Yeah, we grant you that. We've made it easier. Is that just going to be a thing that's going to happen? That's an interesting thing. Uh, yeah, I, 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 well, I think we, it's something that, I mean, again, now I'm speaking for myself and I don't want to um, editorialize too much, but um, I think that's an important um, transitional or phase transition um, in this space, sort of effort versus layering. So so I think that's that's um, that's one thing. Obviously, I agree that there are going to still be apps that you're going to be able to do with layering. Like in our case, like we wouldn't do device drivers and things like that. So there are going to be holes still that you'll need to fill with um, some other type of solution. Yeah, you know, I think I wanted, but before I, I'll stop talking in a moment, but, um, and you mentioned customization, which I also think is very important. Um, and that's another thing that we've tried to address. And I think uh, container, uh, now not to, to throw more um, mud into the water, but we have layers in contain within containers as well as you know, layers on top of raw VMs. Uh, so um, sort of people think of, container, of layers as being on top of, uh, <coughs> of, uh, on top of, of uh, OS virtualization. Uh, you can also do layering within containers, and that gives them, um, and that's a, a lot of what Docker and um, and, and Turbo and other container um, systems are are doing. And I think that's going to open up um, a sort of new Pandora's box of uh, um, of things there. I think I think one of the opportunities there, though, is is specifically around, hey, I need, I, I like the things that you have that are ready made, but I want to customize my car. I want it in black, and I want this and that and the other thing. And that's something that uh, layering can also be done within the container context. Uh, and I think that's going to be one other thing that really um, that really changes um, uh, changes its sort of effort. Um, yeah, and, and I'll I'll just kind of conclude what you're saying. I think the the thing that you guys are doing at, at TurboNet that's really uh, quite interesting, and maybe there's been others that have done this in in the past. I just haven't seen them. Is you know the whole cataloging thing that you guys are doing with the hub, and having you know pre-made packages with you fully disclosing what the recipe, if you will, of creating those packages looks like. So if people need to or want to create them on their own, they have the ability of doing that. But uh, for the commonly used applications to just, you know, immediately have access to, I think you're over 100 or so now, um, yeah, packages. Yeah, a lot. A, a lot, yeah. Uh, to, to immediately have access to all those different applications. I mean, I, I was blown away when, you know, I got access to the Pro account and within, you know, I... I be generous and say 15 minutes, but it was probably more like five minutes. I had the TurboNet client installed and was already pulling down, you know, six six or so different variations of browsers, and it was, you know, an incredibly quick time to value. So I think that's part of what you guys are doing. That you know, if I were to try and repro that same environment, and, and Rory, you've been there. You, you used to live as a, a you know a packager in the field. Um, if you were to try and do that with uh, virtualization technologies, it probably would have taken a day, day and a half before I get all of those different packages available just to just to be able to shoot out different browser versions for application compatibility. Well, Dan, so, I think that's a, a great point. That's one of the attributes I was saying earlier about looking at when these technologies emerge. And I, I call that a GitHub mentality. I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but, you know, Kenji's coming up in the space where you just expect to put stuff on repositories. It's open, you share it. It's a natural outgrowth, right? And that wouldn't have even been a concept in earlier generations. So I think that's a, a great attribute. The other thing I wanted to do, Dane, if it's okay, is to switch over to Kevin and ask him for some ideas on the way that he's approaching this issue. He has a kind of a, I would call like a down-to-earth method in, in terms of what FS Logics does, and maybe we can ask Kevin to talk about his some ideas on that what? subject. Yeah, I think I think great minds think alike because I was just uh, I was just thinking to myself that Kevin's been awfully quiet on the call, and 
you know, the, the way that FS Logics goes about this is is a quite quite a bit different. And uh, Kevin, you have lots of history in this space. Not only have you been a longtime uh, presenter and, and community member uh, at different conferences, but you know, you were at RTO before they were acquired by VMware. So, you know, wh why don't you kind of lay out your outlook on life uh, in in this space and why you guys took the approach that you did with kind of the simplified uh, variation of, of filtering and, and such. So go ahead. Hi, thanks, Dane and, and, and Steve. So, uh, you know, I was there alongside Tim back when Softricity announced their um, partnership with um, Citrix back, I want to say, Tim, 2000, 2001. And you did mention I was with another company, RTO, and then uh, uh, it was acquired, and after... Um, I left that acquiring company, started thinking about some of the problems we have in this industry and, and how we're trying to solve them. And uh, Honestly, Tim Bangan was one of the first people I called with the FS Logics idea to see what he thought. And, uh, um, uh, you know, we, we're in business, so Tim didn't say it sucked too bad, all right? Uh, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I'd go do something else, honestly. But... Uh, um, the thought was back, I remember Softricity on Citrix back in the day, and I know I'm not going to have any um, arguments from Andy about this, because back in the day, there was very expensive storage. Those SANs weren't <laughs> used to the IOPS uh, that a, a desktop load would put on a server like Citrix. So consequently, half of the value I believe that Softricity built back in the day, and now at V, was at just-in-time delivery. And because you have that just-in-time delivery, a couple of things you have to do, right? You have to spoof administrative privileges. Because if your app's going to be delivered at runtime, well, it has to have something in HK local machine. It's going to have to have something in program files. And those are off-limits to typical users on Citrix who don't have administrative privileges. So with that thought in mind, that's why you get all these sequencing and packaging um, uh, solutions that you have out there. Let's wrap a layer around it. And by the way, I'm very, very casual with the term I use for layers, and I'll, I'll go on my soapbox about that one in a minute. But you wrap <laughs> a bubble around the application, and then you deliver it at runtime, and all of a sudden, the um, uh, the application thinks it's talking to HK Local Machine, thinks it's talking to um, program files or any other. Um, uh, thing that's going on out there that will require administrative privileges. Um, you're getting a chicken and an egg, though, right? That's why everyone's saying they can't use this type of uh, scenario with uh, device drivers, because they have to load before your device driver loads, and it makes it difficult to um, it makes it difficult to virtualize that. Fast forward to today, or actually to 2012, when my co-founder uh, Randy Cook and I were talking about this, and Storage is not an issue anymore. I don't think anybody is complaining too much about IOPS and the cost of them because of companies that uh, Andy works for. Uh, you know, guys like Chet went out there and solved this problem, and he has competition out there now. But basically, storage is cheaper now. So the FS Logics way is everything that they did with that isolation we thought was great that's in the app, the engine. All of that delivery mechanism and sequencing packaging, we um, 
we, we think is obsolete in certain use cases. And those use cases would be your hosted virtual desktops, cloud desktops, whatever you're talk it, Zen App, Zen Desktop, View Horizon, whatever you want to what we'll call those desktops. And so what we have the, 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 the system administrator do is install the application using the MSI that the, uh, that the vendor gave him. Uh, and um, when you do that, you know you're not going to have any problems because you have administrative privileges. We tell you to install it in the base image. And then if too many users are connecting up to that base image, at that point in time, if there's multiple users, we just, based on your Active Directory group membership, either that's when we do our layering. We either filter for you from seeing it or we allow you to see it at that point in time. Does it take more disk space to do something like that? Yeah, we've got customers with half a terabyte uh, base images, but when you replicate that out or cloning it out using something like uh, Andy's technology, uh, it doesn't cost you any more physical disk space. Um, so it's become a very effective use case in those scenarios. Now, if you go back though, and we'll, we'll just, if, if you go back there to um, you know, what Kenji is doing, if you need a jukebox where a user is, and maybe that's the wrong term, sorry, but if you need to have it delivered to say a user who has a laptop and you need it delivered at runtime, that's not something that, that FSLogix is going to do for you. For us, we need the administrator to have access to the base image. So yes, there is, it just follows right in what Tim Mangan said, not every one of these uh, techniques solves every single use case today. But that's the FSLogix way. If you have that use case of uh, Zen Desktop, Zen App, um, then it's worth taking a look at. So Kevin, just to understand this better, it sounds like you're saying you looked at the evolution and you feel that the way FS Logic does is you kind of jettison the stuff you don't need anymore, allow the administrator to just do it the way they're used to doing it, for example, shoving MSIs into an image, and then you sort of deal with it after the fact by what you expose. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd use the term shove, Steve, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of yeah. like it. And so what are the benefits you get of that? Any app with a driver automatically works because you installed it in administrative and it's in the base image. Any applications <laughs> that need to talk to each other via COM or OLA or DD, they're all going to get to do it. Any applications that need isolations outside the application, though, FSLogix can handle them. So... Um, Sean Bass was another guy I called. I called him right after Tim Bang and said, what do you think? And he goes, can you take WinZip's context menu off for a user who doesn't have access to, to WinZip? Because that's something that you can't really do with ThinApp. And the, and the answer is yes, because what we can do is hide that, isolate that registry setting or that DLL from that particular user so they won't get that context menu. That's something that's in Explorer that you can't really sequence or package. Um, printers, right? I have Adobe Acrobat, and I want to have reader users and Acrobat users on the same uh, Zen app system. Typically, you could probably do that very well with AppV, but what do you do about the printer that gets installed? How do you keep the user who is using reader from seeing the printer? Because that's what... Adobe uses as their licensing mechanism. So being able to do isolate anything in the system is a side benefit that you get with FSLogix apps. 
Yeah, what you do with the printer and uh, AbbV, I've got a very long, long, long blog post about it. It's not pretty. <laughs> well, you know, what, what people, and, and so the other thing is you have to learn to work together, okay? So you have to learn to work together. Um, we spend a lot of time at Microsoft making sure we interrupt correctly with AppV because you're going to have some AppV and, you're, and, and maybe you use FS Logics for those apps stuck in the base image that you either didn't want to sequence or they, ha they update so frequently. So the AppV packaging houses is if you want a new version of Adobe Reader, that's a new package to them. They're more than happy to sell it to you. And then when it updates again next Tuesday, they're more than happy to sell you that one. And far be it for me, I suggest to the guys at Adobe that maybe they wait a month to update Reader, but that's, um, you know, uh, that's not my place. But um, maybe that's an app you use FSLogix for, and all those already existing packages you have that you know are working with that V, let's just uh, interrupt together. Yeah, I forget if it was Tim, uh, but I can remember uh, reading a blog from somebody that was suggesting, oh, go ahead and deploy your AppV5 applications um, with global publishing, and then just use FSLogix to, um, I guess, cloak the applications that you don't want the users to see. I thought that was a pretty interesting enhancement to AppV. Yeah, so I'll give you, uh, Roy, I'll give you a perfect example of that. We know a customer who has 3,000 packages, and they asked us, you know, uh, going forward, um, we, we've lost some of our really good AppV packagers. Going forward, do you recommend we rip and replace all of these? And even if it took only a day, maybe you got maybe you got Tim Mangan on it, and he could do it in a half a day. That's still 1,500 days to do all of those packages. There's you got to find a way to live together. And yeah, FS Logic spend a lot of time making sure you can do that. You know, one of the things that I that I'm looking at right now is sort of the future and trying to figure out what Microsoft is going to do because the MSI itself is is horribly outdated and I think Microsoft recognizes this and um, it'd be interesting to see what they're really going to end up doing about it in the long run you know one of the things that that I've suggested to them is maybe they should work on getting app V as sort of the new delivery container talking about the format and try to get the ISVs on board to start delivering in that new format and now from there, you could take the format and deploy it. If you need to virtualize it, you can do that. If you want to extract it out and put it into a layering technology or, you know, into in in Kevin's stuff and have it just dropped right down, just use that as a delivery mechanism for the application itself, uh, separate from the concept of using it to do virtualization. So, so Tim, some of the people out there may not be familiar exactly why MSIs are so horrible. But very quickly, everybody, here's the problem. You can, using an MSI, create something known as a custom action. And the custom action will load your DLL and then do it, it can do its bidding. So the problem with MSIs with custom actions is there's a possibility when you uninstall it doesn't undo everything. So right. me sitting here trying to sequence or package that, having to dig into custom actions and stuff like that becomes a pain in the neck. If you move to something more standard like the AppV or just that AppX 
manifest file that they have, then anyone could read that and figure out what's on there and get a lot farther with um, you know making applications uh, interrupt with each other. Exactly. Right, and I think the problem with products like AppDNA, you know, they can look at all that stuff except the custom actions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was I was going to say with the uh, the MSI technology, Windows installer technology, kind of to me it seems like a little bit of a failed attempt to standardize because even when you're on a packaging project, you see maybe about half of vendors' applications are actually in an MSI format, whether it's MSI straight up or embedded in an EXE, and then even worse than that is if you look at some of the vendors' MSIs, like say Google's uh, uh, Google Chrome Enterprise MSI or uh, Flash, uh, they're not using the MSI tables correctly. They're just embedding into the custom action table, so it just defeats the purpose of even putting it into an MSI. So I think what's going to happen in the future, like Tim was saying, I know they um, there's talk of Project Centennial, which I think Tim also wrote a blog about as well. That's going to be pretty interesting because it seems like they're getting back to trying to uh, maybe enforce uh, some standardization and best practices into the application architecture. So I'd be very interested to see where that what happens with that. Yeah, just just along those lines, I think you know one of the things we were talking about is that there's uh, a bit of a perceived notion, and some have experienced it. Um, you know, when I started playing around with layering, I, I experienced it myself as well, that the onboarding process um, is is dramatically different between the different technologies that are out there, uh, app virtualization, uh, layering, and uh, kind of the, the way that Kevin's kind of uh, uh, indicated their, their technology does it with FS Logics. Um, any real world experience, um, you know, we, we've been having a number of discussions with uh, Flexera, uh, and they've been around for ages, right, with Admin Studio, but they have a newer technology, the application inventory and rationalization piece um, that, that I'm starting to see a lot of good fits for, um, kind of along the same lines of the app DNA, DNA um, uh, not just understanding what's inside the application and what's going to create ca compatibility problems, but they'll also actually spin out uh, AppV packages directly from, from within their tool set. So any real-world feedback uh, to share of uh, case studies or, or successes with uh, with their solutions. Maybe Tim, I'll, I'll look over to you. Um, I, I I did some work with Flexera on on some of their stuff. Um, the the uh, the I guess you know what I'd say about them is they're they're largely the only game in town for folks that want to do the repackaging. Um, but I I think that. Um, there is a, a need for focus there to produce quality products that, that allow people to really succeed as they start doing large numbers of these. Um, mm -hmm. the feedback I hear from large enterprises that are working with it is um, it's complex. Gotcha. Right. I've, I've actually I used their tools as well for both uh, AppV and ThinApp projects using the uh, direct MSI to AppV or in app conversion as well as the automated application converter. Um, and honestly, like a few years ago, uh, with AppV had a pretty low success rate. Now they've changed the, the product significantly. Back then, I think they were doing their own kind of uh, their own way of handling it. Now they're integrating with the AppV sequencer, which is giving a 
a higher rate of success in in my testing. Um, is it a hundred percent? Not really. I think it's it's a little difficult to get a conversion tool just for the nature of the beast. It's going to be difficult to get a conversion tool that's a hundred percent successful. But if it expedites, like if you're a brand new customer, you don't really have any experience uh, to AbV or some of the bird products, then if this takes care of even like a, a small percentage of your applications for you, it could expedite a project and you can get those applications out the door. Cool. And, and what other tools, uh, and Roy, I'll, I'll point this one back at you because I know you have a lot of experience in the field as, as a uh, you know, packager by trade. What other tools have been really helpful in your tool belt, uh, whether it's you know, creating clean environments to do the packaging or just uh, things, tools that make uh, the whole process easier for customers that um, recognize that they're going to have uh, a pretty large app virtualization estate, whether that's AppV or ThinApp or uh, any of the other solutions on the market. Uh, well, I, in terms of AppV conversion, uh, the, the best tool that I used was probably ConversionBox, um, just because they did things a little differently. They uh, they launched the application during the sequence. They were using the sequencer. Um, I also like that they outputted um, screenshots from the launch, so it would it wouldn't just say, okay, this failed for this arbitrary reason. It'd be this failed for this reason, and you have a screenshot of you know the problem. So uh, that gives you a much quicker turnaround. You don't have to try and sequence it and figure out what the problem is and then fix it. You know what the problem is. You can just address it and fix it. Um, other than that, as well, there's there's some great community tools. Um, like the application, uh, or the AppV Explorer tool. Tim's got some great tools as well um, for as far as AppV goes. Um, <clears throat> I, you guys mentioned AppDNA, and obviously there's like AppDNA, ChangeBase, um, those kinds of tools. And they're, I really like them um, for like beginning a new project to help set the expectation. Because a lot of customers will come in and think, okay, you're going to get 80 to 90% of your applications virtualized. Um, and while AppDNA and ChangeBase may uh, report some um, false positives or even just false negatives, you know, an issue that where there is no issue, um, at least it gives you kind of a rough idea of the success rate so you can present that to a customer and kind of set the expectation early. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, that's probably the biggest thing that I, I see people stumbling with is, you know, identifying just how many uh, applications are in their environment, which there's a plethora of tools on the market that can go do asset inventory and collect that data, but then also uh, properly assessing how difficult is it going to be to to onboard these applications, whether you're doing an XP to 7 migration, a 7 to 10 migration, moving from physical to, to a virtualized environment, um, the, the apps element of this continues to be um, one of the biggest challenges uh, in in a long-term strategy towards uh, standardizing an environment. W would you guys agree? Well, I would agree. <laughs> I was actually going to say as well that uh, a tool that I find really interesting is Lakeside SysTrack just for the amount of information it can bring back not just around um, not not just around the environment, but I noticed they also added 
a section for uh, application virtualization compatibility too. So, like if you're looking at a, a VDI project or even setting up uh, something like SCCM, they can do a report on that uh, in your environment and um, what the possible bottlenecks are, but it can also report on your application state. Well, now, just, just going back to uh, the, the TurboNet solution really quick, I think one of the unique things that you guys did uh, as it relates to this whole onboarding process is the sequencing bit. Um, either Rory or Kenji, you guys want to talk about how you accomplish the always creating a clean environment for the, the sequencing <laughs> Very carefully. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that... Years of hacking and lots of Eastern European hackers <laughs> down to it, but uh, no, it's that's a big. That was you know we had and people ask well what was the, one of the big things between Spoon and Turbo? So obviously there is you know, all of the container interfaces, the GitHub type uh, model that um, I think um, Steve was was Steve that was referring to. Um, uh, but a big element of that was basically the ability to create um, to create packages in a dynamic manner rather than sort of the static. Manner that you know you know you get with snapshots or whatever <coughs> set of captures. So, um, but yeah, essentially, um, the ability to say I'm going to I'm going to create a virtual clean machine that's running on a um, on a standard you know possibly dirtied up uh, Windows desktop and then be able to do um, the capture um, from that image you know is is a, is a key piece in terms of being able to have a um, you know, an app setup experience that's as similar as possible to what you're getting with the with today's layering products, um, or actually, I mean, to put it more generally, as similar to possible as as the as the standard, um, you know, the standard attended setup that you would do um, uh, with a typical desktop application. So, so the goal there was a to replicate that experience for for an attended installation, and then b uh, what we do with um with TurboScript, which is the um, scripting with sort of a container-oriented scripting language that we introduced was to uh, allow automation around that. And automation obviously is useful for um, so for, you know, for the obvious reasons, which is just you know uh, repeatable pro automated repeatable processes. But uh, Steve mentions the, um, the, what the he says GitHub. We just we just call it you know, Turbo, but the hub. Um, but that also allows you when you put something up to the hub to publish. Not just the contents, but or in some cases not even publish the contents, but you can provide the script. In other words, the dynamic steps that you went through to produce that image. Um, so that makes it reproducible for other people. It allows you to put up, um, you know, pe you know, people put up these recipes for what for AppV or recipes for ThinApp or or whatever. Um, and but those are in you know human, they're human instructions. So. Um, being able to do that process dynamically lets you put up, you know, machine, machine instructions, scripts, machine readable instructions. Um, so, so you can replicate things. It makes it easy to share that in a way um, uh, that that's, uh, that's that's standardized and that's that the machine can understand. Um, and that opens lots of other um, possibilities. So, for example, our, our Turbo Build CI system, it can it, when a patch new version of Adobe comes out, which you know Adobe uh, Reader or uh, Java comes out all the time, or Chrome, um, all of those patches patches and builds. Those are those are all intrinsically automated, out of the box. So that's that's really important. I think there, someone was referring earlier, you know, to need to kind of constantly, uh, someone's going to sell you patches and updates, uh, and and being able to, to do a dynamic build and therefore being able to do scripting and automation allows you to do continuous delivery as well. Um, so I think those are that has been a key element, um, not just sort of as an intrinsic feature, but also in terms of opening up um, continuous delivery 
um, and um, collaborative um, sort of co collaborative packaging and collaborative systems administration, um, as well as allowing people to, to customize scripts when they want to go when they want to take something you have and then um, and then tweak it for themselves without having to make the full investment um, in in rebuilding things from scratch. So I think that's that's one of the interesting things. I think uh, I think will kind of change the the sort of nature nature of the product um, and hopefully. Uh, make it something that's that's usable to a to an order of magnitude larger um, larger audience. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think the uh, the evergreen apps piece is a, is pretty unique. Um, hey, Tim, uh, what have, or Tim or Rory actually, what have you guys seen in the field in terms of um, the whole thing around lifecycle management of the applications once you get them into whatever solution they're into, whether they're packaged in, an, in a virtualized um, sequenced format or they're in a layer. Um, what have you guys typically seen in terms of uh, you know, how frequently or how much uh, additional effort um, large enterprise organizations with, let's say, 500 to 5,000 applications, how does that typically go uh, with regards to lifecycle management of the apps? Well, I'll, I'll pitch in from my perspective, which is that I believe that they pretty much ignore the apps until something goes wrong or they change their environment again. <laughs> good, yeah. good feedback. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Um, in my experience, not just large companies, but like medium to small companies, um, they don't keep a good handle on, on the applications in their environment. Uh, I actually saw an interesting product. Um, I think it's called AppRx, um, which it's basically it keeps a repository, like a database of the, your application information, and you can set alerts. So uh, say you want to get alerted uh, when your application falls two, two versions behind, or you want to get a, an alert if uh, your application is end of life or six months away from end of life or something like that. And that, to me, I thought that was really interesting, very unique, because in all the companies I worked for, that's been a huge challenge. You know, people who were the cha application champion or the application owner for a certain application, they might retire, or God forbid they might die or leave the company, um, then that just, like, falls into the great abyss or, or there's all constantly organization changes uh, constantly, okay, we already own this application, now this group's going to use it, and that group's going to use it, and there's just, it's a complete nightmare to manage. Um, so yeah, I echo Tim's sentiment, and it's <laughs> it's really not uh, at the forefront for most companies. I, I'm also, it's, it's funny, you reminded me of a company called CSI, I believe it was called, and, and they had a product that you would um, basically point at an existing image and it would, on a daily basis, report back to you about patches of all of the applications, um, as well as the operating system patches that were available that you weren't up to speed on and how critical they are. I thought it was kind of cool, but I don't think they've gotten a lot of uh, traction. Yeah, we, we, we've actually merged, uh, or we are doing something that does a subset of that in Turbo, where if you have a, if you have a subscribed app on a Turbo channel and the uh, CI system detects a patch, we'll actually send you an email. And so, you know, a new job updates out, and it doesn't have a lot of metadata on it, um, but you do have the option to uh, um, 
you know, to either test it in an isolated container or push the update out to your uh, subscribe devices. So we'll see, we'll see how people... Guys, if I could jump Steve. in, because i, I got to take the other side of this, because um, now I can see why AppV gets a bad reputation. Um, that's not really all at what we see. What we tend to do with our large customer base, and I think that's a good breaking point, Dane, is like you know 500 or more apps, is we tend to train small teams of people to be the app fee experts, and they become mm -hmm. like the clearinghouse. So we don't see them go there to die. We see them where you know a, t a small team of people maintain the apps, and the developers deliver to them a new version, and they do a new version of the sequence and push it out. So I don't think it's as bad as that, but I do hear those stories. So, you know, so I know the initial sequencing time uh, can can be you know fairly significant, especially when you're talking about all the UAT uh, user acceptance testing that's that's typically involved with pushing those out. Um, it, is it you know 50% as as much effort when the the larger trained well trained organizations get a good handle on it? Is it 25% the amount of effort? Like what's that whole life cycle piece look like from what you guys have seen? Uh, for w very well-established app packaging uh, IT organizations. And Dane, are you asking like between you take let's say a complex enterprise suite and you sequence it, you're asking the difference between that initial sequence and opening it to applying updates? Is that what you're asking? Sure. So like if you were to load up the you know the total number of man hours and say you know you got a team of four people but two of them are going to be dedicated to onboarding this one application let's say it takes you know 40 hours for one of those complex applications to fully sequence it do user acceptance testing module testing and then push it out are you typically seeing that it's uh, a quarter of that time or half of that time when there's updates because I, I, I would have to imagine that applies into how frequently organizations would push out the updates is how painful is it to you know crack open that package and inject new secret sauce in there and then do, do that whole cycle all over again. You know, it's one of those things that it's like the typical consulting answer, it depends. We'll <laughs> try to give you something general. A lot of apps, they can just pop them open and apply an update and they're fine. But the tricky ones, especially for major updates, oftentimes that's when they'll call us back, you know. And we have Hao Lang on staff and we use Tim for at times for difficult things so I'm used to working with top guys so they usually knock out difficult apps like in a day or two a tough one sometimes it's longer and then people um, who are on staff can generally manage them but they often do come to points where they have difficulty they've worked on it for you know maybe a couple of days or a little bit more then they call and say hey this tough one we need help with so it's not, certainly not perfect they don't take it and run away with it 100% Certainly, Let's do Tim, Tim, and then Claudio. Uh, Tim and then Claudio. I know. Rework is generally pretty low when you want to redo the app, but you know, for the company that outsources that packaging, um, they don't see that gain at all, because the the outsourcer, you're not going to be anywhere near the same person you dealt with before. Um, and generally, the people who are on the other end of that that uh, keyboard are not very well trained, so you just don't see the, any advantage on those secondaries in that mode. Yeah, not not everyone not everyone can call on Tim, because there's only one Tim. Um, it, goes, <laughs> it 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 goes back to Rory's point. It's like, who who knows about the application, and who you're passing it to. Earlier on, I I spoke about people being concerned about that layering, 
uh, being concerned about AppV and that AppVert piece versus layering, they've got the instructions for how to install the application. They understand that. How the application is put together and installed, so should the AppVert team have a problem, quite often they don't know. Maybe the developers moved on. Maybe they, they bought an app, uh, a development piece and that developer came in and developed the application. He's left. There, there was no documentation or instructions because he's a developer. They don't do that sort of thing. All of that is, is failing. Now, if you get someone of Tim's caliber coming in, probably be able to work it out. But if you don't, if you're just passing it on to a application virtualization factory, they just don't have that skill. And, yeah. and, and that's what causes problems for enterprises who are trying to do that, that migration piece. And it's not only, it's not only to, to take uh, Simon Townsend, who's listening. Nice, nice to see you, Simon. Um, it's not only about the development of the application piece, it's the testing of that piece as well. It's not only about wrapping it up. It's about who, who's, who's able to test it. Now, if it takes a long time to do an advert piece, your testing schedule is, is knocked out. If it takes a short time because you're doing maybe a layering piece or installing it directly, your testing schedule can be much, much easier. And Claudio, I, I know you've been dying to pipe in here. No, just one thing. Like... Uh, the main problem is the definition of life cycle for an application. I think that's the, the, the biggest problem that you see everywhere. Like for some people, life cycle of an application is how long it takes to open the, you know, the box to unwrap the CD where the app was, you know. The, and for other companies, it's the whole thing, you know, they, they go the whole nine yards. They get the app out there, they go to a test environment, then they do user acceptance, then they do regression, you know, regression testing when uninstalling or updating applications. So when you get into the whole thing, the bottom line is barely anyone does it. So it's a very loose definition. It really gets down to what you define as life cycle for a, an application. Very well said. And I would agree. I've seen it very significantly. Um, and it's not just the size of the organization. A lot of it has to do with the industry, um, external factors. So um, very well said, Claudio. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, or even the, the, the person, you know, the so-called application owner. Some people are, are very aware of the, the whole cycle, but others... You know, it was the, the guy that used the application for the longest in that particular company. So he has no idea what an application means from a development standpoint, from a regression testing standpoint, from anything. But he became the application owner. So his definition of the, the, the life cycle is completely different than ours, you know. Yep. All right. Well, any other uh, topics before we start wrapping up with closing thoughts? And we've covered covered a lot of ground here on this podcast, so hopefully it's been uh, valuable for everyone. Been a great discussion. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to end it uh, with a little little bit of a look into the future. So with Windows 10, with Centennial, with things that that Microsoft is doing. Uh, obviously, Microsoft dictates a lot of the world that we all live in. Um, as we wrap up, I'm going to go around and we'll just ask everyone 
where do you see this all going and where do you see the future uh, in terms of this whole application, session, desktop, virtualization space, or containers? Um, so why don't we start with you, Kenji? Okay, well, Windows 10 is, I'll start on that topic. Uh, I think there's going to be a real, my, my meta level, there'll be tension between where Microsoft wants to take Windows 10 and where users want Windows 10 to go. Uh, so I think that'll be that'll be something to watch. Um, they're really redefining what um, uh, the nature of the relationship between the, the vendor and the customer. So um, that'll be interesting um, in terms of, of uh, the discussion about uh, sort of desktop versus um, uh, versus hosted. I think I think you're going to see hybrid systems. I think you're going to see a lot more um, getting pushed out to the endpoint. Um, I don't, you know, the Citrix, uh, the VDI, and the other things are not going to go anywhere, but I think you are going to see a, a mesh. I think you're going to see a blurring of many of those lines, um, and uh, and that'll be something something else to watch. And Turbo will be will be part of that, um, and and hopefully, at least in our view, hopefully this is a year when um, container technologies, um, sort of the newer the new advert. Uh, I don't want to say the like the year of VDI. I don't want this to be the year of the desktop container, but. Um, hopefully, we'll see a change. What we'd like to see is that it's a change in the in, in the in the scope and the nature, and sort of by an order of magnitude, the, the addressable market um, of those technologies. So, not really something that that requires a Tim Tim to do, but something that that uh, that even mom and pop can use. So, so that'll be something interesting to watch um, on our end for 2016. And I, and I will stop and I will shill my own product for a moment. But check out TurboNet. Um, give yourself five minutes there and uh, and see uh, see how successful we've been on that front. Very cool. Hey, Kevin? Um, yeah, I, I, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's been enlightening for me as well. I've enjoyed listening to all of you speak. I have to agree with just about everything Kenji says. I do know for many large-scale corporations, things move slower, so that just gives more opportunities to companies like mine and Kenji's who... Uh, let's face it, we have a lot of enterprise customers who've told me that they'll get to um, Server 2016 in 2020 if right. they really get uh, on their horse and start working on it. So there's always going to be an opportunities to backfill and um, work on existing. And that's just, that, that's just great for the industry because it is such an important thing. It's all about the apps, as Steve said, and you have to... Uh, realize that these customers where, where um, you know, nine minutes um, spent a day comes out to be a 40-hour week that you're wasting to people's time. So whatever you can do to get these applications up and running for these end users is always going to be an opportunity for third-party vendors like, such as ourselves. Very cool. Hey, Rory? I know you've uh, lived much of your life in, in this space in the field, so we're, where are you thinking uh, things are going? Well, personally, I hope uh, that there's no need for packagers like me in the future. I'd like to be do so, doing something a little uh, less re repetitive and frustrating at times. Um, it's not every day you hear somebody uh, make that statement. I wish there was less of a need for people like me. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think there's always going to be a need for people that, you know, have the smarts of troubleshooting application issues and uh, that sort of thing. But I definitely, like, when I started looking at app application virtualization, it was very fringe. It's becoming more widely uh, used now. 
and with the advent of things like containers and like glaring, it seems like the focus is finally being turned to where it should be is the applications because you know it's very easy to set it and forget uh, a desktop image you know that's pretty static consistent it's the applications that no two apps are the same it's uh, such a challenge to just get to grips and get all those applications migrated each time you move to a different OS so I think we're finally addressing the application elephant in the room and things are going to get a lot better for people like us in dealing with those applications. Very cool. And Tim? Sure. Well, first I need to uh, correct a lot of speakers that were here and just point out that I'm really not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say you really haven't shaved because we looked at the profile <laughs> Well, I haven't shaved. You're looking at an old picture. That's true. Okay. That was one of the, the highest rated tweets. It's like, he shaved? <laughs> not, yeah. about, not about all of the detail and all of the clever technical stuff. It's like, right. Tim Everybody's shaved? Everybody's was shattered. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Well, Tim, I appreciate your humble nature, but I still think you should be big kahuna, not just kahuna. That's just me. I can't do that, okay? I'm He's the, a married man. No, the, the problem is I have a son who's in this business, and I don't think he wants to be known as the little kahuna. <laughs> just the All right, anyway, um, as, as I think this is a, a fantastic time, and it's a time that we're going to get a lot of change, though it's going to come very, very slowly. Um, We've lived in a world with Microsoft and applications where we have had this tremendous ability to have backward compatibility that you can continue to run these old apps for years and years on newer versions of platforms. You know, I go into any company, they've got a whole bunch of apps that are at least 10 years old from the installer dates. Um, and they're continuing to use them because they can and it's productive. And, and I think that that's become a huge burden for all of us in making all of this stuff work. The idea of getting apps containerized through whatever fashion, both the app and the data that has to go with that, and have a way that we can uh, dynamically bring them into operating systems where we need them, I think is really important. Um, some of that's going to need app virtualization. Some of it's going to be the layering. You know, we're going to use all of these technologies. But I really look forward to seeing this change over time in the future and, and I think that, that Microsoft is finally really on board with the idea that you know these things really need to be containerized and separated from each other. You know, they've kind of gone way too far in terms of the AppX model and it's just so completely isolated that you really can't do much that's useful in that environment. But over time they'll fix that up a little bit. They've got this centennial thing that's coming on with the idea of taking these applications and really getting them so that they can deliver them in a way that they know the system's protected, that those apps can't make system level changes. And I, I think that's going to be important. It's just going to take a long time for all of this stuff to flush out. We're probably going to make a whole bunch of mistakes along the way. Um, but, you know, that'll keep consultants like us employed. Very well said. And so, Dane, if I can point out that Rory put himself out of a job and Tim just secured his job. Well, correction. I said it frees me up to do more interesting things. Okay. If we look back at, I think Rory, if we look back at the whole thing, 
And when we listen to the podcast, that's not what you said. <laughs> <laughs> ah, whatever. I'll move back to Ireland. Go on an appointment. It'll it, it, be, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. They, they'll all come out in the edit. It, yeah. Not just, just don't rely on our unemployment system out here in the U.S. You'll be sorely <laughs> disappointed. <laughs> So um, th this has been a great chat. Um, I really like how we, we started the discussion talking about how uh, a lot of things evolved from the, the PC gaming industry. Um, I, I'm curious as we go into uh, you know, 2016 and then beyond to 2020 and beyond, how many more technologies we'll see making their way into the enterprise space that had some form of genesis in the, uh, the PC gaming world. Um, just as a uh, you know, somebody that's interested in that uh, area of the market. So um, I really appreciate you guys all, all jumping on the podcast. Uh, it's been a very informative and uh, long-winded a bit, um, but I, I think it was really good. Um, by far the the most uh, guests and co-hosts on the podcast. So thank you guys for joining. Um, we actually maxed out our limit for what Google Hangouts can handle. Um, and both Dwayne and Thomas Poppelgard, uh, Dwayne Lesner and Thomas Poppelgard weren't able to join us. So uh, looking forward to catching them next time. Um, thank you all for your time. Uh, thanks for uh, being so vocal and sharing your thoughts on where the industry is going. I uh, hope you have a great afternoon and evening. Look forward to catching you soon. Thanks, for thanks all. Thanks, thanks man. Very much. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.